from one of our missionaries. This is Shannon and Danielle Hurley and their family who live in Uganda. Um, actually, their oldest daughter is in college uh, at the Master's College out in California right now, but most of them still live in Uganda. Um, but they sent this Christmas card, and I thought it was very fitting uh, for this morning and for what the Lord had laid on my heart to preach and, of course, all that we've already heard and seen. Uh, so it says, Dear friends, we enter this season with hearts full of joy. Living in Uganda brings a unique perspective at this time of the year. While we don't see many outward signs of holiday cheer with the lights or decorations in our village, we see even greater signs of Christmas. Just a few weeks ago, 13 more villagers were baptized before an audience of hundreds on the lawn outside our church. Testimonies of transformed marriages, restored families, and release from addictions were heard by church members and curious villagers alike. But just imagine if the first Christmas never took place. Imagine if Jesus never came. How would we deal with our sin problem? How would we ever be made right with God? That first Christmas changed everything. And it's because of that first Christmas that we are here in Uganda today. So we do not get to see the true signs of Christmas all around. Not in Christmas trees. Uh, so, so we do get to see, I'm sorry, so we do get to see the true signs of Christmas all around. Not in Christmas trees or wreaths, but in lives no longer living for themselves, but seeking to glorify the newborn king. What a privilege to serve this king here in Uganda. Thank you again for your support that allows us to continue this faithful work. Hmm. Well, with that, I invite you to turn your Bibles to Isaiah 53. And we're continuing our series called The Promise of Christmas, which Jared began a few weeks ago in Genesis 3.15. Last week I continued in Isaiah 9, 1-7. through 7, And this morning I'll be uh, covering... Most of Isaiah 53, uh, the title of our message this morning is The Purpose of the Promise. The Purpose of the Promise. So follow along with me in your Bibles or your copy of God's Word as I read uh, this uh, amazing prophecy about the Lord Jesus Christ. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew before him like a, young, a, a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs himself bore, and our sorrows he, buried, or he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. And he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that is silent before its shears. So he did not open his mouth. But oppression and judgment... He was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut out, off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him into grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge and righteous, 
by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, thank you so much for Christmas. Thank you, Lord, for your son. Thank you that we can celebrate the gift of him. Now, Lord, as we look to you, we look to your word, we ask that you would use your word to not just inform us, but to transform us more and more into the image of your son so that we might truly celebrate the gift of him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if we haven't dismissed all the children up through fourth grade, I think we have. They can be dismissed for children's worship if they'd like to go. Um, So just in case we miss someone. Let me ask you a question here this morning as we begin. Uh, Have you ever received a gift and wondered what it was? You've gotten a gift and you open it up and go, what's that? Uh, Maybe if you're, you're a parent, you've received a gift of a picture from your child and you look at the picture and you're like, whoa, hey, great, and you're really wondering what it was, and, you, and, and you're, 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 you don't want to say, because you know that it, it's probably a sheep, and you're going to say it's a cow, and you're going to blow it, but you, you got it, maybe you've gotten a gift, and you just wonder what it was, or maybe when you figured out what it was, you wondered what the purpose of it was, <laughs> and maybe you've received a gift, all right, that you, from someone during Christmas time, that you've wondered, what is the purpose of this, i.e., the sweater from your third aunt removed that she knitted by herself. You're wondering, especially down here, you're wondering why they would give you a sweater. Uh, You hardly ever need one, but one of those kind of gifts, you just wonder, what's the purpose of this gift? Maybe, none of us would ever do this, maybe because we have this guilt about people buying us gifts. Eric and I were just talking about that uh, this morning, where to go, about people sometimes will give you a gift, and you've got to give them a gift back, right? That's the right thing to do, isn't it? Of course. Actually, it's terrible if that's our heart, and often that's it. We feel this pressure to give a gift. And you just go out and you get a gift and you give it. And there's no thought process behind giving the gift, just that you gave a gift. Right? You, you, you run over and you get something, and there's no really purpose for it except just to make sure that you don't look bad. That's kind of the purpose. But we, sometimes we give gifts and we don't really get, think through why we give the gift. There's no real purpose in even giving the gift. Well, my guess is that both those scenarios are true, especially around Christmas, that we sometimes receive gifts. We don't know what their purpose is. We give gifts. We don't give them for a particular purpose. But thankfully, God is never like that. It's never like that. He always gives a gift with purpose behind it. He made a promise to give a gift. And when he made a promise to give that gift, there was a purpose for giving the gift. There was a purposeful reason to make the promise and then deliver on the promise of the gift of his son. There are descriptions throughout the um, Old Testament of this promise that God made us in his son. And and, um, many of them mentioned, they mentioned his family tree, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David. We know that the son will come through that lineage. Uh, mentioned his tribe, his tribe is a tribe of Judah. They mentioned how he, he, he would be born, he would be born of a virgin. Uh, he would, where he would be born? He would be born in Bethlehem. He would have a, a forerunner that would come before him and announce his coming, John the Baptist. And, and others, many others that are mentioned about 
the promise of the Son of God, the Christ. And, and, and that's impressive. All those are very impressive. And yet none of those speak specifically about the purpose of the promise. They tell us when, where. Uh, they tell us uh, family background, tell us some other details, but they don't tell us why. They, they answer the what and the how, but not the why. Even in Genesis 3.15 and Isaiah 9, 1-7, which we've dealt with over the last couple weeks, there's not a specific answering of the why. If you just had those by themselves, you may not get exactly why would he send his son. They, they give hints. Well, I can't think of any better passage of Scripture in all of the Bible, especially the Old Testament, to tell us the purpose of the promise of Christ than Isaiah 53. I mean, it is clear. You can't miss it when you read through this and you study this amazing prophecy that God made through Isaiah over 700 years before Christ appeared. You can't miss the why. Yes, there's lots of when and hows, but you can't miss the why in this passage. Therefore, I thought it was important that during our looking forward to Christmas and the celebration, the giving of the Christ child, that we be reminded why he was sent. The why is so important. How and when make no difference at all if there's not a why. He was sent to redeem a people for God's own possession. Redemption. You sometimes hear these words in, in church, like, well, what's that word? Redeem. Redemption. What in the world does that mean? Well, the word redemption or redeem is to mean purchase the freedom of one who is under bondage. That's what it means to redeem someone. It's to purchase their freedom. The Bible is a story about the only redemption plan that really matters. It, it, it's the story of God redeeming people who are under the bondage of sin from that sin and freeing them from that bondage of their sin. This is why Christmas happened. It happened because of sin. That's why it happened. And a need for people to be redeemed, to be set free from that sin. The truth is we've all, we all have a need to be redeemed. All of us do. All of us need to be freed from the bondage of sin. Set free from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin, and ultimately from the very presence of sin. Every one of us here has that need. If you're here this morning, you've never repented and trusted in Christ alone to forgive you and to make you right with God the Father, then you have a need to be redeemed, to be set free from the penalty of sin, which is death. Amen. Eternal death. In a place the Bible calls hell. If you're here this morning and you have been redeemed from the penalty of sin, you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, you've turned from trusting yourself and trusting in what he did for you, you still have a need to be redeemed. Often we think that redemption stops at the door of our initial salvation where our sins are forgiven, where the penalty of sin no longer rests on us, but rests on Christ. We stop there. And you know what? The gospel is so much better than that. That's good news right there, isn't it? That we're freed from the penalty of sin. But it's way better. We're also freed and are being freed from the very power of sin that we struggle with every single day. We all need to be redeemed. And those who are in Christ can also look forward to the benefit 
of God's redemption in Christ, for one day we'll be even freed from the very presence of sin. And I'm telling you, you can't even imagine that. You can't. We can't imagine being freed from the presence of sin because we live with it every day. And I'm not talking about your neighbor or your husband or your wife. I'm talking about you. I'm talking about me. That we live with sin every single day. I cannot be, I cannot wait. I'm rid of this earthly body and the flesh that was so easily pulls me down and I give into. I don't need Satan. I don't need the world. I got me. And that's bad enough. We live in the presence of sin and one day that will all be taken away because of what God promised to do in his son. There's a purpose for Christmas. Now a good pastor, a good teacher will always try to let their audience know why they need to listen. Why do I need to listen to all this? Why would we even come here and listen to some guy talk about the Bible and and maybe this particular passage? Well, I've just told you, let me remind you. You need to be redeemed. You need to be redeemed. You need to be set free from the power, the penalty and the power in the presence of sin. All of us, every day. So let's look at this amazing passage here in Isaiah 53, really verses 3 through 12. And I'm going to handle a little bit different. I'm going to pull some stuff from different places to look at some of the the keys concerning God's redemption in this passage. This is, again, for me, it's probably like a four-part series in this this one passage. We're going to do it all in one. But we want to see these four keys concerning God's redemption. Why? So we can live in the freedom that he promises and truly worshiping this Christmas. God the Father sent Jesus the Son. I'm going to repeat this like a hundred times this morning so we don't miss this. God the Father sent Jesus the Son on that first Christmas in order that, the purpose, in order that he might suffer, die, be buried, and rise again to redeem people from sin. And if you don't get anything else this morning, if you get that, home run. Because it can change your life and it will change your life every day. Well, let's see, the, the, the first key concerning God's redemption is redemption is God's plan. It's God's plan. Look at verse 10 with me. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. Uh, the ESV says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Now, I was stumbling reading a little bit because Jared and I just memorized the, the ESV version of Isaiah 53 this fall together. So I was trying to read from my Bible and not stumble to the ESV, but there's some things in the ESV I really like, and um, again, it's a great translation, this is the New Regular Standard is, and so many great translations, but the ESV says it was the will of the Lord to crush him. New Regular Standard says it, was, it pleased the Lord to crush him, and th- they both point the very fact that this was God's plan to crush his son on our behalf. This was God's plan. This is evident throughout all the scriptures it was God's plan. You can even see this as you look back at Genesis 3.15 that Jared preached on a couple weeks ago when I was in Russia. That he, he, personal pronoun, right? He, personal pronoun, would come and he would crush Satan on the head but in the process would be bruised on the hill. That there was this, and that, that bruised on the heel was a crucifixion. That he would die for us to overcome sin. And, and you see it all throughout the scripture. One particular place, 
that I'm thinking of. Let me get my button. There we go. Okay. Is that in, in Acts 2, 23-24, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. You see, God was not at the mercy of the Romans. He wasn't at the mercy of the Jews. He wasn't at the mercy of Pilate. And he's not at the mercy of us. God planned to crush his son. Christmas and the redemption that comes through Christmas, and then we can call it the Resurrection Sunday all together, was God's plan. Notice also the last phrase in verse 10 with me. It says, And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Or the NIV says, The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And this points to the fact that God's will will most definitely be accomplished in his Son. There's not a chance it won't be. There's not one iota of a chance that it will not be accomplished. It will be accomplished in his son because redemption is God's plan. Nothing can stop God's plan. We can try all we want to keep redemption from happening, but it won't happen. And just so we know that this is so important for us to understand this, that redemption was God's plan B. He can go, oh gosh, can you believe they sinned? What am I going to do now? Like our, our, our little innkeeper. Oy vey, right? This morning. What am I going to do? That wasn't, this is not plan B. He didn't react. God is not reacting to us. Oh, well, if they did this, well, I'm going to have to do this because they're kind of in control. Never. This, the scripture teaches this was God's eternal plan. From before the foundations of the earth, it says, God had written people's name in the Lamb's book of life that he was redeemed by his son. It's not plan B. The fact that redemption is God's plan does not allow any of us, to, of us to be boastful in regards to our redemption in any way. We didn't think of it. We wouldn't have. What would we have done? The biggest and strongest survive, right? The truth is we're all sinful and we need a redeemer. There's no big and strong when it comes to spiritual, spirituality. We're not. This is God's plan. God alone gets the glory. Its ultimate purpose this is the ultimate purpose for which he created us, that we might bring him glory. We see this in Isaiah earlier, in Isaiah 43, 6 and 7. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. For what? For his glory. For his glory. That's the, why he created us. It was God's purpose in sending his son Jesus to redeem us so that we might bring him glory. So we might fulfill the purpose for which he made us. That's what Christmas is all about. And it takes redemption for that to happen. For us to be freed from the penalty and the power of sin so that we might bring him glory. That's great news. Redemption is God's plan. Well, secondly, the second key found in this passage concerning God's redemption is redemption requires God's payment. In Isaiah 53, we see three truths concerning God's requirement of a payment in redemption. Uh, first, about this redemption payment, it was expensive. Well, how was it expensive? How was this payment expensive? Look at verse, in other words, in verse 8 with me. It says, he was cut off out of the land of the living. Notice also the word, words in verse 9. His grave was assigned with the wicked, yet he was with a rich man in his death. 
And then in verse 12, he poured himself, poured out himself to death. These all point to the very fact that Jesus died. He was cut off out of the land of the living. Death, death, death. How expensive was his payment? It was so expensive that it took the death of God's perfect son, Jesus, to fulfill God's required payment of redemption. That's how expensive it was. Not only was the requirement of God's payment and redemption expensive, it was also excruciating. Look at verse 10 with me. This phrase, it says, putting him to grief, or the NIV says, cause him to suffer. Look at verse 11 as well, where it says, as a result of the anguish of his soul. And notice that word anguish there. It's the root of this word relates to the dark side of labor. The grievous and unfulfilling aspect of work. You ever been there? Anguish. This points to the excruciating, extremely painful nature of God's payment for redemption. And now look at verse 5. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. Notice those words. Pierced, crushed, chastening, scourging. Now look at verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. The physical excruciating pain of his redemption was obviously great. Just think about those words. It was excruciating pain. And in fact, the scripture in Isaiah 52, right before this in Isaiah 52, 14, look what it says. His appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. More than any man, he suffered physically. It was awful what they did to him. We can't even imagine without movies how awful this was. And that helps us, but we still don't get it physically. We've never experienced like anything like he experienced. But the spiritual and emotional pain was far more excruciating than the physical pain that the Lord Jesus went under. Consider what we find in Matthew 27. 46 about the cross about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying Eli Eli lamda sabachthani that is my God my God why have you forsaken me he was forsaken by the father due to the fact that he took on all of our sin the perfect fellowship between God the father and God the son that had been from all eternity now in moment in time because of his great love for us was hindered. It was no longer perfect fellowship. Not because of what Jesus had done, but because of what we had done. And the scripture says that he became sin, literally became sin on our behalf. That perfect fellowship was broken. It was excruciating. But why did this expensive and excruciating payment of death have to be paid? Well, to answer that question, let's look at the third truth concerning this requirement of God's payment of redemption. Not only was it expensive and excruciating, it was essential. God's payment of this expensive and excruciating death had to be paid. Had to be paid. Why? What was the reason? Well, look at verse 10. Look at there, about halfway down through there. He would render himself a guilt offering. An offering 
for sin. Now look at Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. God is just. And His justice demands that a payment must be made for sin. Would we have any volunteers this morning that would like to pay for that infinite debt? Do we have anybody here who could pay that infinite debt? No. Because it takes an infinite God to pay an infinite debt. Whose sin demanded the offering or payment of death? Not his sin. But look, you even see this, we reminded of this in verse 9. The second half is because, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. He was sinless, and it's spoken of throughout the Bible. All of his enemies even pointed that out when they were truthful. Pilate says that this guy's done nothing wrong. If not for his sin, then whose sin demanded a payment of death? Isaiah tells us ten times, ten times, whose sin demanded a payment and why it was essential. Look, at, let's follow down through this, this passage. Verse 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore. Verse 4. And our sorrows he carried. Verse 5. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. Verse 5. He was crushed for our iniquities. Verse 5 again. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. More And by his scourging we are healed. Then verse 6. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All. Verse 8. For the transgression, further down in verse 8, of my people to whom the stroke was due. Verse 11. He will bear their iniquities. And then verse 12. He bore the sin of many. Our, we, us, all, my people, their, many. It was our sin that made the payment essential. We deserve the stroke of death. Now, all that I just told you, you already know. But sometimes we need to be reminded of that. And I think that that's, the, 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 Isaiah, is here for a, Isaiah 53 is here for a purpose, and he mentions it ten times. So we won't forget that. And often we do. I know I do. It's my sin, not your sin. It's my sin that put him there. That's all I need to know. And we can say collectively, as a church who loves the Lord Jesus Christ, it's our sin. That was the reason there had to be a payment. That's why it was essential. Jesus himself said this is why he came in Matthew 20, 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to serve, but to be served and to give his life a ransom for many. It is therefore evident that God's payment in redemption was essential in order that the sin debt might be paid. However, in order for us to truly begin to comprehend the expensive and the excruciating, the essential nature of this debt that had to be paid, we must understand the depth of our sin. Now, I could go read Romans 3 if we really want to be encouraged this morning. If you've never read it, you ought to go read it. It reminds us of 
the, the, the depth of our sin, but the Bible clearly teaches over and over that we are unaware, unwilling, and unable to come to God in faith and be redeemed. That's the depth of our sin. Do we understand that God the Father gave His one and only sinless Son to pay the penalty of the wrath of God, which was death, for your sin? You and I deserve the cross, not Him. But praise His name that we who have repented and trusted in his payment on our behalf can humbly say he made him who knew no sin to be sin on my behalf that I might become the righteousness of God in him. My prayer is that before you leave this room if you can't say that confidently and humbly that that will happen this morning. Remember as we continue to walk down through this passage of Scripture that we are discovering the purpose of the promise of Christmas to free God's people from the bondage of sin. Now let's look at the third key found in our passage concerning God's redemption. Redemption requires God's power. Look at the second half of Isaiah 53.10. Notice the phrases, He will see his offspring, he will prolong his days. To what do these phrases refer? He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. What's it pointing to? The resurrection. He will. Now look at verses 11 and 12 and notice the phrases. He will see. He will divide. These are prophesied to happen after his death. And you look back at Isaiah 52, 13. It says... My servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. All these verses clearly point to the resurrection. And look what Paul says about the resurrection in Romans 1.4. Who is declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. Christ's resurrection declared that he was the Son of God in that it, he, it proved he truly was the perfect God-man able to overcome sin and death. Only God can overcome sin and death. The resurrection is the power of God in redemption. It is the power that shows that Jesus' payment for sin was accepted by the Father. That's what the resurrection declares. That the Father accepted his payment on our behalf. Without the power of the resurrection, the payment of the cross is rendered powerless. Without the resurrection, there's no redemption of sinful mankind. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. No redemption. We're still in our sins. There's been no freedom without the resurrection. But listen to what Paul says three verses later in verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Therefore, through his resurrection, we have forgiveness. We have new birth. We have redemption. The resurrection is the power of God and redemption. Notice again that it is God's power, not man's power. Therefore, once again, he gets the glory. When the power of God redeems you, sets you free from the penalty of sin, then you are free for the very first time to live. Do you hear me? When God, through the power of his resurrection, sets you free from the penalty of sin, then 
for the very first time in your life, you can live. Before that, you're just a dead man walking. Man, what great news. Are you truly living by daily overcoming the sin that so easily entangles you? If we're not, why not? It's not because God didn't redeem us and, and grant us the power through the resurrection to overcome sin in our life. He does. He did. And it's effective today. When the temptation comes your way. Now some of you were back when we were preaching through Genesis, Genesis 3, and we went to Romans 6, and we pulled some principles out of that about how do we battle sin in our life. Well, here's what happens when temptation comes your way. If you know Christ, you have the power to overcome that sin. You no longer have to sin. First time in your life, that was the case. Here's what you say. When the temptation comes along, along the way, you said, I'm dead to that. I'm dead to that. No longer are you the boss. I got a new boss. He's called the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I don't have to obey that anymore. I'm dead to that. That's what Paul said in Romans 6. I'm dead to that. I don't have to. Then you can truly live. The power of the resurrection power to the redemption and was the purpose for Christmas all along. Well, let's look at the fourth key found in our passage about God's redemption. Redemption is God's promise. Look at verse 11 where it says at the very end of the second to last phrase, my servant will justify the many. Uh, notice that word justify. What does the word justify mean? It means to make right. To change someone from someone who is declared guilty to declared not guilty. To make them righteous. To acquit them from all wrong. And notice the word it says will justify. It's a guarantee God will justify. God's redemption plan did not just make it possible. Please hear this for people to be justified. Many people say, oh, he came and, and he just kind of made it possible. So there's a possibility that Jesus came and he died and he rose again to pay for the sin of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And there's a possibility no one will come to him. Are you kidding me? God would give his son for no one? That's an affront to a holy God. It's an affront to his grace. It will happen. It's a promise. Look at many of you. Did the promise come true? You bet it did. He will. Not he might. And I'm so thankful for the he wills in the Bible, aren't you? I'm not real good with the mights. Because the might means I might have something to do with it. And now we're in trouble. This is the purpose of the promise in Christmas. But how do we personally realize his justification on our behalf? Well, this is clearly taught in Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith... We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We personally realize this justification by faith in his payment for sin. Saving or justifying faith is not just an intellectual assent to some facts. And I'll live there for far too long. It is a turning from self and from sin and from deceitful promises that sin promises all the deceit there, the lies. Turning from that and turning to Christ and his finished payment on our behalf that we might be freed from the penalty and the power and ultimately the very presence of sin. Well, not only is redemption promised or guaranteed by God through the gift of his son, but even the means to accept the provision of his son is a gift and nothing for which we can take credit. 
Even the ability to believe. What a great God we have. So he gets all the glory in the promise of redemption. Well, the purpose of the promise of Christ or Christmas is what? To start with an R. Redeem. People who are under the bondage of what? is a three-letter word. Sin. And who would that include this morning? Yeah, me. All of us. Do we need to hear this truth this morning? Do we need to live in this truth every day? You bet we do, all of us. So here's my question. Have you embraced this freedom from the penalty of sin that God provided through Christmas? If not, I urge you, I implore you, as Paul says, on Christ's behalf, to be reconciled to, be, to God, to turn from yourself and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you have, then are you, am I, living daily in the power he gives us through his redemption to overcome sin in our lives? Because we all got it, don't we? Just, just think about it. In our marriage. And I'm not talking about the other partner. I'm talking about you. I'm talking about me. The greatest problem in our marriage is me. In parenting? Anybody perfect parent in here? No, we're not. Why? Because sin is involved. How about in your friendships? You may have a perfect friendship. Anybody deal with unforgiveness? Bitterness? Pride? Lust? A lack of faith? If I hit home at all? All those I need help with. And the purpose for Christmas, the purpose and the promise of Christmas is that God would help us overcome those things. That's good news. That's purpose. That's a purposeful gift, isn't it? If you've never unwrapped that gift the first time, I encourage you to do that. And I encourage you to unwrap that gift every day and embrace the promise of Christmas and the purpose behind it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word and thank you for this unbelievable prophecy that was prophesied over 700 years before Christ even came and then to watch him walk this out beginning with Christmas. The giving of your son in a humble way. Lying in a feed trough with animals that stunk all around him. Who was probably a pointer to the ones he came to die for. Those who stuck with sin. Lord, I pray that we would live in the purpose of the promise of Christmas. Not only just this Christmas season, but every day. And embrace the most perfect gift ever given. That's your son who keeps on giving. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've got a couple of announcements that I need to make before we are dismissed. Um, actually, I'm going to let uh, Greg make one announcement before I make another one.